Stephanie, thank you for leading our missions here at the Gathering Place. Uh, I never want to be a navel-gazing church. We can't be looking inward all the time at our needs. We've got to look out at the world, right? And uh, Stephanie says, such a great job giving us a missions highlight every month so you can see tangibly where your offerings go and how they're helping. I don't know if you followed uh, or not, but that ministry we pioneered. There were no self-help groups until we initiated them. And uh, the self-help sounds kind of new agey to us, but to them, um, they've lived in poverty for so many centuries that they never even, the thought never enters their mind that they could uh, be elevated. Uh, They've lived desperate in in survival mode. One out of every five kids, children, babies die from a, a lack of access of water. We've done water wells and all sorts of things. And the whole pitch is God cares about you. Spirit, soul, and body. So when we were just bringing the gospel and getting them saved, and yet they were destitute, we thought Jesus cares about their survival as well. And so we have worked for years to change their mentality that you can be a victor in life, and Jesus will help you. And so that's what that's all about. And so when you see 385 self-help groups, there was none. There wasn't even the concept until we initiated there in that region. And then, of course, with the church planting um, supporting that, you're seeing whole villages, Muslims and, and uh, Orthodox and then Christians coming together, and we do our best to make sure that there is a spiritual Christian in that village leading those self-help groups so then they can plant churches out of those, and that's how we're bringing the kingdom into that region and elevating a whole people group. Isn't that awesome? Amen. So, you guys ready for the word? All right, well, I'm ready to preach. Like I said, you guys clearly figured I'd be ready. So you gave me two of these. I'm going to put one right over here, just in case I need it. So let's pray and welcome the Holy Spirit, who is the teacher. Joshua, I was, uh, while you're leading worship and you asked the Holy Spirit to come and to blow on us like a wind, I immediately felt a breeze go by me and I opened my eyes to see if somebody walked by me. When you were talking about Jesus walking in the garden, mm hmm. I don't know if anybody else experienced that. Maybe it's just me and Jesus today. Maybe I'm the only one that got the encounter, but it was really sweet. I mean, when he says, if two or more gathered and I'm there with you, do we really believe that? If something like that happens, do we consider it weird? We shouldn't, because he's here. He's fire, he's wind, he's rain, he speaks, and he teaches. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the teacher. Flow through me like water this morning to encourage your people and to destroy thoughts and strongholds in the mind that the enemy has built up in our minds. Just demolish them and set us free to be the people, the army, the family that you say we are. So be it. Amen. Today, I'm going to preach a message to you that was deposited in my heart a few weeks ago called Obstacles or Opportunities. (laughs) Yeah. Obstacles or Opportunities. 
This dropped in my spirit when the school district sent out a message, an email. You know, you're sitting at your desk and you get emails coming in. And I open up an email and it says that the school district is going to raise our rent 600%, which would leave us homeless. And every other church that is meeting in schools, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools throughout this entire region are all going to be on the streets. And the real estate in this region is non-existent. And so the schools all over the nation are critical. In New York, they did this, and churches were literally kicked on the streets. And so I get this email, and the first thing that happens is fear strikes my heart, as you can imagine. And I'm feeling helpless and hopeless. I mean, you know, the school district can do whatever they want. They are in power, and we are subservient to their whims and wishes. And so I'm feeling uh, fear. And so I go to a meeting with the high school principals because we do work together. And so I'm at a round table with the five high school principals from this region. And um, I didn't mention it to them. So we got in the parking lot, and I'm talking to one of the high school principals who now works in the district, but he doesn't work in the department that controls the, the rates that they charge people that rent the facilities. And he and I were talking, and he's a very strong Christian. He used to be the principal of Del Norte High School. And as I'm telling him this, I'm wanting him to commiserate with me. I'm wanting him to, to tell me that this is terrible. This is unfair. I want him to feel me being a victim of the system. (laughs) And do you know what he said to me? It really, really annoyed me. He said, it's an opportunity. I was really miffed. Because I felt like, man, you're not, you're not like, you're not, you're not feeling for me right now. But really what was going on was I was having a fearful pity party that he did not want to come to. And what irritated me even more was he was right. And I knew it deep down. But the problem with that is that means I would have to take ownership and responsibility for the situation. I was feeling paralyzed, and that's what fear does. It paralyzes you. I was feeling paralyzed because you're dependent on me. I am the leader of this church. Ultimately, it's my responsibility. Also, I lead a relational network of churches all over this region, pastoral relational network, and I represent the church churches to the school district and these principals, and so I'm feeling responsible for them as well. Many of you in leadership positions, whether it's uh, your mother or your father or your coach or your teacher or your manager or somewhere, somehow you are leading something and people are dependent on you, the pressure can come on you and you can feel um, incompetent. And so what do you do in that moment? And so he left, and I was irritated, and I commiserated. 
And then I realized the only way this is going to change is supernaturally. And so I had better get out of fear and into faith. And the sooner the better. (laughs) And so do you. Faith is a choice. Fear just comes at you. Faith doesn't just happen unless it's a gift of faith by the Holy Spirit, the spontaneous, and thank God when those moments happen. But they are not common. What's common is fear. How many would just be honest this morning, raise your hands, so I know I'm preaching to the right congregation. How many of you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes, and you have this anxiety coursing through your system, and you lay in bed at night thinking about the problem, you get laid off, the relationship's not working out well, you've tried this, you've tried that, and you're anxious about school, you're anxious about your finances, whatever it might be. Fear is like right there at the door for all of us on this side of heaven. Faith is something you have to go get. Faith is a choice. Every day and in every circumstance, you will always have to choose whether you are going to live by faith or by fear. It's going to be in every arena of life. Whether it's your marriage, is it going to make it? Do I have faith for it? Your kids, are they going to walk with God? Your finances, are we going to be able to get out of this financial hole? Your future, the anxiety over the future, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. There's enough trouble today. That's what he says in the book of Matthew. You can plan, but don't worry. And if we're walking with God, why would we? But you see, that's the journey of faith. That's the deepening of trust. And the longer we walk with him and see his faithfulness, the easier it is to believe, except every new challenge is bigger than the last one. And we're going to look at a story today about David who slayed his lion and his bear and then his Goliath. There's a graduation and overcoming obstacles and seeing them as opportunities. And as you graduate, your faith gets bigger and your ability to give God more glory gets greater because you're slaying bigger giants because your faith muscles are being developed. Come on. I got one hallelujah. I'm going to work for two. I'm going to keep preaching. I get at least three. Real ones. We have to understand that in every given situation, we are looking through one of two lenses. The lens of faith or the lens of fear. The lens of what's possible or the lens of what's impossible. The lens of obstacle or the lens of opportunity. And as soon as you choose to face a situation, as soon as you choose to face a situation using faith and not fear, you've just changed the game. You have just changed the rules. And I mean this. This isn't just hyper-preaching. This is real. You've just changed the game. Look at this definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1. Faith comprehends. I want you to catch that. Because people talk about blind faith. Faith is not blind if you're seen into another realm. Faith comprehends. Faith analyzes the situation and comes to its own, its own deduction. So does fear. Fear looks at a situation, oh, not gonna, no way out. Faith looks at the exact same situation, comprehends it, and says, way out. Faith comprehends, watch this, as fact. 
Well, I'm just a realist. Well, so am I. Faith says we can't. Fear says we can't. Both are realities. Faith comprehends as fact. As fact. You get that? Fact. What cannot be experienced by the physical senses. So the physical senses are not invited to this algebraic equation. We are dealing with a completely different set of variables here. Beginning with faith, not fear. And it changes the outcome. It's like this. Let's say you have a financial issue and there's no way to pay your mortgage. There's no way to pay your car payment. They're going to repossess your car. Whatever it might be. And you are in fear. But you have a rich uncle. And he loves you. And he's always there for you. What happens with your fear factor right there? Significantly reduced because you know you're going to make a phone call. Now, I don't mean to be crude and call God a rich uncle, but he's, he, I, he's not broke. And he does love you. And he has said, it's my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He does call himself Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. The question is, are we living in fear or are we living in faith? Because faith is connected to God. God said this to me one time when my brother and I were in business. As long as the devil keeps you in the arena of fear, he will win every time. But as long as you keep him in the arena of faith, he will lose every time. So you say, well, how do I do this? How do I remain in faith? The number one way to feed your faith and to starve your doubts is to read, meditate, and choose to believe the word of God. The more you meditate the Word of God, shut up social media, turn off the television, and cool down the entertainment, and get out the Word of God, and you start reading it and meditating it and memorizing it, getting it into your heart, the more real your rich uncle becomes. And then you run into a situation and fear hits you, but you say, hey, wait a minute. God, I just spoke to him this morning. I read his promises this morning. And so, God, the reality of God is so much more tangible that you can grab a hold of him so much easier because you've been meditating the word of God, which the Bible says faith comes by hearing the word of God. A man and a woman saturated with the word of God in their brain, they are looking through a different lens. Look at the book of Deuteronomy says, Moses writes this to the people of God. Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach, nor is what John is preaching to you right now. It is not up in heaven that you say, you ask, who will ascend up into heaven to get it and proclaim it and bring it to us so that we may obey it? Oh God, he seems so far away. Who's going to go get it? Nor is it beyond the sea. That you have to ask, who will cross over the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No, the word. Everybody say the word. word. Come on, church, say the word. word. The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you may obey it. 
This is a classic story we're going to look at regarding this very thing today. And it's found in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. This young man absolutely loved the Word of God. He meditated it day and night. He wrote the majority of the Psalms. The longest chapter in the entire Bible he wrote, Psalm 119, 173 verses. Most Psalms are 5 verses or 15 or maybe 20 verses, 30 verses. 173 verses, and it's all about the love for the Word of God. This is how David had the kind of faith that we're going to read about today. And and guess what? He's gone. He's in heaven. It's your turn. It's your opportunity. You now can be the David in the earth. There's nothing stopping you but you. You can slay giants now. And God is waiting. God wants to partner with you to do miracles But fear says are not possible. So I want us to dive into this. I'm going to do a little bit of teaching. I'll tell you the end of that story with the uh, school district in a minute. But let's look at this young teenager. He's about 17 years old at this point in the story. So there is no junior covenant with God. There's no junior Holy Spirit. There's no junior faith. Little children can call heaven on earth. God is not a respecter of age or color of skin or where you come from. He's a respecter of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So let's jump into this story. It's a common story, but it's one we can never exhaust. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between these places and these people. (laughs) When I read the Bible of Josiah and Samuel every day. We do a Bible study, and I just let them make up nicknames for these people. Saul countered by gathering his Israeli troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with a valley between them. So here the battle lines are being drawn. And as I read down through this, and I teach today, you've got to... You've got to fast forward this from 3,000 years ago to armies on a battlefield to you at work, your marriage, your money, your ministry, today. You and the enemy. You and the situation. You and Satan. These are the two that are coming out against each other. You've got to own this story and make it your own. Then Goliath. Everybody say Goliath. Okay, everybody is going to have to face a Goliath. More than one time in their life. That's why we got to muscle up. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet. His bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was heavy, as heavy and as thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Okay, here's a graph that shows the actual dimensions uh, contrasting an, an actual soldier to Goliath. You got, you got that graph for me, Chris? That one right there. This is the actual difference in the size that these two are going at. I like watching the UFC sometimes, forgive me. And uh, you, always, you always look at the height 
and you look at the arm reach, because if somebody's got a four-inch arm reach, you're just, you're just going to get popped all day long. You're going to try to get in there, and you're just going to keep getting here, right? This is ridiculous. There's no way. I mean, when you look at the natural, there is no physical way that that soldier can beat that soldier. And then, on top of that, here comes the enemy, and again... This is the voice of the devil talking to you and your situation. Goliath stood, the devil stood and shouted at you in your situation and a taunt across the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion. I'm the devil. I'm huge. You're small. You're only a servant of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. You call yourself a real Christian. You call yourself a godly husband, a godly wife. You really think that God's going to provide your finances for you. You really think that you can, your marriage is going to survive after what you did. You really think God can use you in ministry after you have sinned. Your answer needs to be yes. Your answer needs to be Absolutely. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. The enemy will use situations that are overwhelming in your life, unfair, unjust, you're mistreated, you're misunderstood, you're accused falsely, you're fired unjustly, whatever it might be. And the enemy will come and he'll talk to you at night. He'll talk to you when you're alone and put those thoughts in your head and begin to shame you and say, you screwed up. It was your fault. They're being unfair. You just, and you got to get back at them. And all this kind of stuff comes into your head and you feel fearful. You feel lonely. You feel depressed. You feel discouraged. They were, they were, what does it say? They were terrified and deeply shaken. And then he will begin to try to identify you. You're a loser. You could never be like Pastor John or Pastor Mark or Pastor so-and-so or preacher so-and-so or this person or that person or your sister or your brother or your this person or that. But you can never be like them because you're, and he just goes on and on. And you know what one of his names is? The accuser of the brethren. He's a criticizer. He's a liar. He's an accuser. But you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You are a son or a daughter of the living God. There was a time in B.C. 444, 444 B.C., a guy named Nehemiah's assignment was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem after it had been demolished and burnt down by the Babylonian army uh, 90 years earlier. He comes to rebuild the wall, and the enemy Sanballat and Tobiah show up on the scene, and they begin to mock him. You think you could rebuild this wall These burnt stones, you think you can rebuild this marriage, you think you can rebuild your ministry, you think you can rebuild that friendship, you think you can rebuild your career. They said even if a fox were to run on the walls, they would crumble. And they began to mock them and criticize them, begin to judge the motives of their heart. And Nehemiah, Josh and I were talking about this on the way down to church today, Nehemiah 
ignored them. Now, what an insult. That's when you have true faith. When the devil's going, and you don't even pay attention to him. How frustrating for him. And then Nehemiah just looked up and said, God, strengthen my hands for the work. Boom. Rebuilt that wall in 57 days or something. I love verse 12. Now David. Now David. They describe this whole scenario. The giant, the Israeli army, the taunts, the intimidation, the impossibility, that dark, black, bleak backdrop of your situation. And then two words. But Bella. But Mark. But Gary and Kathy. But Nick. But Michael. But Darley. You come on the scene and it changes the situation. You've got to decide if you're going to be the one that is deeply paralyzed and terrorized. Or you're going to be the but David. Everybody say, but David. But David. I love it. You and I, let me say it this way. You and God are a majority. Because your faith, when you're walking with God, all of heaven is at your disposal. Do you remember, there was a story in the Bible, if you don't, where this, where the Assyrian army came out to take Elijah, Elisha because... He was uh, doing his prophetic stuff and messing them up. So this whole army comes out, surrounds his house up on the hillside with all these chariots. And the servant comes out, Elijah's servant. He says, oh my gosh, my master, my master, alas, we're going to die. And remember the prophet Elisha said, uh, there's more of us than there are of them. More, uh, there's more of us than there are of them. And the prophet, the prophet's servant goes, one, two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. And the prophet says, God, open his eyes. To what? To the realm of the unseen, the spirit realm. Why does Satan get that realm? He didn't create it. God was there before Satan ever was created. The spirit realm belongs to God. There are more angels than there are demons, and the demons are just loser angels. That's all demons are. I was watching this commercial last night on ghost, ghost finders or ghost searchers or whatever. I'm like, ghost hunters. I'm like, I want to go with them. The show would only be about three seconds long. I was thinking to myself, I might not be able to find them because I don't have the gift of the discerning of spirits. But I was thinking, maybe I could find somebody with the gift of discerning of spirits. And then they could find them and then I could cast them out. But the show would be too short. It'd be shorter than the commercial. And you could do the exact same thing. He opens his eyes, and all of a sudden the servant saw a ton of chariots on fire around the, Israel, the, the Assyrian army chariots. These are the eyes we must live by. God is with me. God has resources. God is on my side. 
now David. He was the son of a man named Jesse from Ephraimite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's the oldest, three oldest sons, and he names them, had already joined Saul's army to fight with the Philistines. David was the youngest son. I love that phrase because I'm the youngest son of six. (laughs) That's why I love that phrase. So often God chooses the weakest, the loneliest, the poorest, the most marginalized, the the biggest losers to do the greatest things. Not always, but many times you see this. Why? Because of three things, humility, availability, and more of God's glory. Those who have been marginalized, who have lost it all, or who don't have much to offer are the most teachable usually. They're the most humble because they're not, they know I'm not very impressive to begin with. And so God chooses them and says, I'm going to do some things through you that's going to blow everybody away, including you. And they're usually the most available because nobody's picking them to be on their team anyway. And ultimately, God gets more glory because he's using the least to do the greatest. But it's not always the case. He uses the up and outers too. The Apostle Paul, he was rich and powerful and politically connected. It's just that many times their breaking takes a little bit longer because of the pride and the self-sufficiency. But God will use anybody who's available. Verse 20. Wait a minute, we're going to have to go back up here. Yeah, so, he, so, so God, so, so David's dad sends him up to give his brother some food. And we'll go with verse 19. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early in the next morning with gifts as Jesse had directed him. He arrived, okay, I love this phrase. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with the shouts and a battle cry. God will have you show up right at the right time. It is so amazing how God orchestrates things, isn't it? God wants to bring provision into a situation. And so he will orchestrate it so that you arrive where he wants you to arrive right at, the, right at the right time to meet a specific need. It could be in your company. It could be on your sports team. It could be wherever it is that God needs to bring his provision for heaven on earth. And you are the woman. You are the man. If you're a woman or a man living by faith, knowing you have a covenant with God, expecting God to do things through you, you will find You and God partnering father and sons, father and daughters in a profound way. I learned this in business. When I learned about tithing and then it started pouring in, and I learned that the more I give out, the more comes in, and I got into this this giving and getting and giving more and getting more and giving more and getting more, and this thing started working. I realized heaven loves this, God loves this, and the business became father and son. It was so much fun. We moved from survival to partnering with, the, with God who wants to pour his provision into the earth through people to provide the needs of people who are suffering. I remember this one time I was on staff out in East County and I was the youth pastor, but I was also managing three stores here in San Diego. And I was in prayer and the Lord just put it on my heart to give one of the associate pastors $1,000. So much joy doing that. It is so much fun to help somebody when they're in financial stress. It's like 
It's like sickness and disease with the stress of that or a broken marriage and the stress of that. The financial stress. I mean, how many of you ever experienced financial fear? Come on. And when somebody comes up to you and says, God told me to give you this, boom. That's a happy day for the giver and the receiver. So I said, God told me to give you a thousand bucks. What I didn't know was the next day he was in seminary and the next day his tuition was due was a thousand dollars. And he and his wife, who was the worship leader of the church, had zero money. They were asking God for a grand. What do you do? When God put me on a sovereign sabbatical, Hope's former pastor, uh, after he uh, heard that our entire staff got laid off out here in San Diego, it was a mega church because the pastor fell into sin. I just got married, just bought a home, and it's like, well, <laughs> I hope I'm still enough for you, sweetheart. And, uh, and so she had just moved out here from Louisiana. We had just gotten married. And her former pastor, who was a pastor of a 6,000-member church, wanted to hire me. Praise the Lord. Hope gets to go home. I get to have a job. Let's go. And so the pastor said, let's fast for three days and see if Jesus says anything um, before we pull the trigger on this. And so I fasted, and the Lord gave me an Old Testament verse. There's only one time in the Bible when a man takes a new wife, he doesn't work for a year. Now, Hope and I, I met her in January, married her in November, and it was a long distance. So she doesn't really even know me, and she has no history of my spiritual leadership, hearing from God, and walking by faith. All she did was call some of my friends and say, is he a good guy? And that's all she got to go on. And they lied for me, which I appreciate. (laughs) Too late. And so I called up her former pastor, and look, I mean, there are guys all over the world that would give their left arm to work with, with this pastor, the things that rock in the world, the gospel. I have to call him up and tell him this. Worse than that, I have to come out of my prayer closet and tell my new bride that. Oh, by the way, honey, Jesus not only told me not to take the job back in Louisiana, but he also told me not to work for a year. <laughs> So then I call him up, and I said, Pastor, I don't know how to tell you this, but... And he said, John, I didn't know how I was going to tell you. God gave me the exact same verse for you. I think he did that for her, because she knows him. He was a, she was his personal assistant for years. I mean, she's seen his track record of leadership and hearing from God. But now, we have no income. I live in San Diego, just bought a house, just got married, have no job. The next day, a multimillionaire called me up and said... I heard you got laid off, and I believe in God's call in your life. I don't want you just taking any job. So tell me what your monthly nut is, and I'm going to cover that until you find out what God wants you to do next. I didn't have to pray about that, by the way. I didn't like say, I'll call you back on that one. The way God provides is, is many times, listen to this, many times God will provide for you in a way that you least expect or you least want. He'll send you what you need in a package you don't like. Many times we'll allow, God will allow situations to happen that you find are unjust and unfair because he's putting you in a situation because he's going to do something in you that couldn't be done any other way. That's his provision. 
or he'll send somebody your way that you just don't like. But it's God's provision for you. That's why we can't operate in the flesh. We have to operate by hearing from the Lord and being led by his voice. Eliab, David's oldest brother, did not catch this. I want you to see this in verse 22. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion of Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? The men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give him, he will give that man, one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. David asked, how big was the, a giant? No. No, no, no. No. That's not what he asked. He didn't ask to describe the giant, the mountain, the circumstance. He didn't ask about it. Why? He was looking through an entirely different lens. As we'll find out, he's not even paying attention to the giant, how big the giant is, how big the problem is, because his eyes are not on Goliath, his eyes are on God. What he wants to hear again, hear about again, is not how big the problem is, he wants to hear how big the reward is. What did you say? I said the giant, no, 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 not that part, (laughs) right? David asked the soldier standing by, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Okay, here comes the key phrase. Who is this? Now, the New Living Translation I'm using says, who is this pagan Philistine anyway? Now, in the, in the King James, it says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? New, the NLT made it a little more polite for our 21st century public audience. Why in the world would David call him uncircumcised? I'm like, if you're going to get in a street fight and the guy starts to curse you and say what he's going to do to you, and you say, yeah, but you're not even circumcised. I mean, how? That would just be weird. But not back then. Not back then. You know why? Because God chose circumcision as the sign of being in covenant with him. And I won't get into it, it's because of the life source and the seed and reproduction and all that kind of stuff. That's why God chose that. In the New Testament, that's not required for a covenant with God, but the circumcision of the heart, the Bible calls it. That your heart is circumcised and the old flesh is peeled back and a new heart is put into your body. So it was all metaphorical. Aren't you glad also that today the symbol that we use, that Jesus gave to us, of the new birth is not of, of what's happening inside the outward sign that you are in an inward covenant with almighty God with circumcision back then. Aren't you so glad for those of you being water baptized today that water baptism now is the new Testament public expression of the inward covenant you've already made with God and not circumcision. I mean, if I sent out that Facebook video or sent out that letter and saying, Hey, by the way, those of you who have not yet been circumcised. Next Sunday, we're going to do it in front of everybody. As a public declaration of your faith in Jesus. Come to our membership class. We will circumcise you. Everybody say, thank God for water baptism. (laughs) 
who is this uncircumcised Philistine? See, David did not care about the size of the situation or the obstacle. It was irrelevant. Faith comprehends as fact what cannot be revealed to the physical senses. The physical world, the situation was irrelevant. That he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God. See, David, it wasn't about David. David could not believe that the Israeli army was allowing God's name to be defamed by this uncircumcised Philistine. He's standing in front of the whole Israelite army going, How dare you guys allow the enemy to mock our God using your life to do it? This is why we must be men and women of faith. And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that is the reward. Verse 20. Uh, verse 28. But when, but when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know, Watch this. I know about... Now, remember, God called David a man after his own heart. But what does David's older brother say about his heart? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. When you are operating by faith, looking at a situation by faith, and everybody else around you is in fear and trembling, you make them look bad. And they will not like it. Some will come to you. Like Josh was saying to me just this week. He said, David raised the bar for everybody else. When he killed a lion and a bear and Goliath, if you know David's story, he got cast out of Israel. He's living in the enemy territory. 400 men who were distressed, discouraged, and in debt joined themselves to David. What a wonderful congregation to have. And they lived in a cave. And yet, because of David's leadership, listen, leaders, managers, coaches, teachers, parents, you and I are responsible to lead in faith. I knew that when I got that letter from the district, and I thought, our church could be over if God doesn't do something. So I decided I better turn this obstacle into an opportunity, which means I better begin operating in faith. And so I prayed. And the Lord spoke to me, and he gave me wisdom. He said, write one-page letter of how this church, the Gathering Place Church, has benefited this city over the last 20 years. And say it is simply one church of many who have done the same kind of service in this community, and you do not want to burn. So he told me to write a one-page letter 
about what our church, how we've served this community, and representing how all the churches all over this North County Inland have served the community. I'm headed down, and I'm, I'm still, it's still just, you know, they can say whatever, you know, we don't care, easily. I didn't know how they were going to respond. They originally had sent me a document that had three categories for different rates, and we were in a particular category, and our, our rent would go up 600%, and we, would, we wouldn't be able to afford that. And none of the other churches would either. On the way down to the board meeting, which I was going to show up at the city board meeting, the school board meeting, I was going to stand up and have three minutes to plead our case. On the way down there, I get an email. It's a new document with a fourth column they created just for churches. And the rate went up just a little bit. Not only did all the churches get a new rate because of that, but the reputation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in North County Inland was elevated. And some of the principals spoke to the district, and they defended us and told about how we and the other churches in this city have been a blessing to the North County Inland. And so what the enemy meant for evil, God turned to good. But it took somebody, in this case it was me, in your case it will be you. It took somebody to decide not to operate in fear, but to operate in faith. Oh, my time's up. When David spoke to the king, he said, look, I've killed a lion with my own hands and a bear with my own hands. Who does that? You can't do that in the natural, but you can when you're walking with God. So he had a history remembering the answered prayers of the past, the, la- the, the historical victories, so when the, next, when the next obstacle came, which was even larger, he was able to tap back into what he and God had already done in the past. Just like the lion, just like the bear, God and I are going to take care of this giant for you. Don't you even worry about it. He was looking through a completely different lens. What lion have you and God killed in the past? What bear have you guys killed? Don't be afraid of your Goliath. My favorite phrase in this entire story was, is this, David ran toward Goliath. (laughs) I love that. Family of God, run toward your Goliath this week. Run toward it with your faith and your faithful God. Let's pray. I'm going to ask everybody to stand with me, would you?
Now, I want us to come to the Holy Spirit together right now because the Holy Spirit is going to make this real. So, so don't close off and don't daydream. This, this impartation piece right here is where the Holy Spirit makes a two-dimensional teaching become reality. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment and just open your palms heavenward and ask the Holy Spirit this question. And I'm going to get quiet for a minute because he speaks quickly. Ask the Holy Spirit this question. What is my greatest fear right now? Okay, now, I know that it just came right to the surface because that's what the Holy Spirit does. Now the Holy Spirit is asking you to make the choice. Are you going to look at that as an obstacle or an opportunity for me? Now go ahead and tell him. I choose faith. Tell him, I choose faith in this situation. I want to watch you turn this thing around, and I'm giving you my faith. Now just take a moment and pray into that, would you? Draw a line in the sand. Turn your back on fear. Pray into it. Jesus, we're going to slay this Goliath together. Let it sink all the way down into you.